Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Quick, name two things that hit their peak in the 1980s. Yes, mullets were one of them. But we're thinking cycling and physiology here. What about training principles? How much has changed since the days of Bernardino and Greg LeMond? Well, today, with the help of longtime coach Jeff Winkler, who, yes, once raced as a pro in the 80s with a beautiful mullet, we discuss what has and has not changed since the 80s, focusing on the principles of physiology. Are they fundamentally sound and equally effective as the principles by which cyclists train today? Jeff is what you might call an old-school coach. He believes in large part that since the 80s, when he was training with Eddie B and the U.S. national team, training hasn't really changed all that much. It's just that we can now measure things more than ever before. So today, we'll take a close look at the science and research, the equipment, the tools and software used for analysis, then and now. Which decade wins? Stay tuned. As a bonus, we may also discuss our favorite euphemisms for the mullets. What did you call yours? Maybe it was the achy breaky big mistakey? Or the ape tree? How about the beaver paddle or the El Camino headrest? Perhaps you've always been a fan of our friends up north calling yours the Canadian passport. In any case, pull out those old photos of you with your beautiful flowing hockey hair. It's time to go way back to the 1980s. Let's make you fast. Hey, Coach Ryan here. It's spring for most of us, which means more volume and more intensity. This is a great time to win an inside fitness test. Inside is a lab-grade fitness test you can do wherever you are, without having to visit a lab. Inside lets you take a detailed look at your own fitness. You'll discover your VO2 max, training zones, anaerobic threshold, fat max, carb max, and more. Book your test at fasttalklabs.com inside. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. We've got a very interesting uh, conversation in store today. It stems from a conversation I had with our main guest today, Jeff Winkler. Welcome to Fast Talk, Jeff. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, so Jeff and I were on the Panache ride. It's a local ride from Boulder, uh, uh, not sponsored by, but just based off of uh, based out of the Panache company's uh, headquarters here in Boulder. And we were riding along talking about fast talk and coaching and topics. And uh, one of the things Jeff mentioned was this idea that, you know, training principles really haven't changed all that much since the 80s. And, I, and I'm paraphrasing. We're going to get into this. We're going to debate it a little bit, but mostly discuss it. And um, here we are. Gosh, it feels like two years later with the way the world has worked in the in, in recent times. And it's great to finally get you on the program, first of all. It's great that, uh, I guess I should apologize, it's taken this long, Jeff, but glad you're here and look forward to hearing where this conversation goes. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I, I think it'll be a fun one. Your background, you raced in the 1980s. You trained with Eddie B., the famous Eddie B., rode for his teams back then, and, and since then have gone on to coach a multitude of uh, teams, athletes of different uh, ability levels from the collegiate level to the elite level. Give us a little background. 
Yeah, the Cliff Notes is, um, I started in 1986. Uh, I was a senior in high school. Um, I, I kind of, I was swimming a little bit in high school and then a friend of mine from swim team had talked about doing this ride and it kind of got me going. And so I ended up purchasing a bike and, and then kind of doing my own thing. Uh, and ended up never riding with that guy, which is kind of funny, but um, ended up um, connecting to the local community, racing as a junior, uh, my last year as a junior, so 18 years old, and then raced in college, uh, then ended up racing uh, at the elite level and spending time in Europe and racing uh, before stopping and coming back to school. And then I ended up coaching the University of California, San Diego in the early 90s. Um, and then in that interim, I've coached individuals and clubs and teams um, up until once I moved to Boulder and then coached CU for six years here, coaching their road and their mountain bike and cross teams. Um, and then now I'm a full, I mean, since I've been in Boulder, I'm a full-time coach, uh, coaching athletes at all levels. I know that this, as we tried to understand where we wanted to take this conversation, we thought, oh, it'd be awesome to have this debate. Oh, you don't need to train any differently than you did in the 1980s. Oh, you do need to train. Things have changed so much. Um, I don't think we can necessarily take it there. We don't want necessarily want to take it there. So today's more going to be about, uh, there's going to be some opinion here. Some It's going to be a, a broad discussion about principles that existed, principles that have changed. So it's going to be a very broad discussion about some big topics in, in training and sports science. Do you want to lay down some ground rules here, Trevor? Chris came to me with this idea after he, he talked with you, Jeff, and I thought it was a really cool idea. Then as we got ready to start uh, preparing for this one and putting together an outline, I realized to do this scientifically, uh, to be able to say, you know, here is what the research is showing, we would literally have to research everything that has been uh, discovered, advanced, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> since the 1980s. Yeah, good and 40 years. find research showing whether those changes have actually produced improvements in athletes. So a couple of days ago, uh, I talked to Chris. I'm like, I would have to read four or 500 studies for mm -hmm. this episode. So that, unfortunately, wasn't doable. So I apologize to our listeners. This is going to be a little more our opinion. I'm sure we'll bring in some research. We'll talk about the the changes in the science. Uh, great to have you with us, Jeff, because I think ultimately what we're going to talk a lot about is coaching experience. So you're going to get a bit of a opinion. You're going to get a bit of experience. Uh, just understand that, uh, unfortunately, going through 500 studies in three days. I can't days, believe you didn't do that. I would I'm, really, love to. I'm really disappointed in you. I know. I'm sorry. Well, and that wouldn't be the complete answer either. Yeah, you know, true. Probably not. <laughs> how science has has moved over the last forty years, but but maybe not wheels on the road. So, Jeff, you live this. What uh, what was your training like in the 1980s? Take us back in the way back machine, if you would. Yeah, um, I, I'm going to start with a little disclaimer and just say that my experience may not be exactly the same as everybody else who was racing at the time. Uh, in fact, I've, I've talked with um, my contemporaries who raced a little bit before me, and I got the sense from them that they were uh, winging it kind of in the old school model that, that we've kind of all kind of 
come to know all LSD and, and that kind of thing. Um, so, I, but for me, so I started as a junior, I, I, I was living in Bakersfield, California, which is a little bit of a backwater. Um, and certainly there was no great cycling community like a boulder. Um, and so I, I kind of had to take it upon myself to figure it out once I got serious. Um, certainly I, I found a community and I rode with them and, and certainly, you know, maybe something that was a little more common in the eighties and nineties was that the development, a lot of your development came from your community, like those who are further along the path than you would pass down knowledge. Um, but you know, the, the eighties was a weird time. I mean, if you think about the history of USA, us cycling, the generation of, of us pros were active. So there was nobody to be the coach, right? There, there was no coaching community. Um, basically, the only coach at the time in, in, of note it was Eddie B, Eddie Borsevich. And he was the national coach uh, in the mid and late 80s. And, and then it became Chris Carmichael uh, at the, as it, we went into the 90s. Uh, and I rode with Chris on the national team a couple of years after I started. Um, but so, you know, for me, it was books and, and, you know, unlike now where you just have all kinds of information, you, there just weren't that many sources. Um, and I, I did a little trying to dig them up and I, and I did get rid of, uh, Eddie's book. Um, but Eddie's book was probably the first one I saw. And it, I mean, it looks like a textbook, you know, it's, it's a big book. Um, and it, then I, I actually, Greg Lamont published a book in, in the mid eighties. So did Bernardi know. And I also had a book that was by, uh, uh, an exercise physiologist from the Netherlands. Um, and that actually was a pretty technical book, a lot of lactate data and, you know, analyzing different athletes at different levels of the sport. Um, and so I kind of just relied on those as training manuals, if you will. And, and they did have like Greg's book, especially had like a progression. It's like, okay, you know, you're 15, 16 or a junior, and then a U20. I mean, they didn't have U23, but you know, and then a established pro and, and they had annual kind of guidance that would carry you along. And I adopted that, you know, and I read them all, but I, you know, I kind of integrated it all and, and was self-trained until I rode with Eddie. Um, and then and, and, or and or the national team and and there was but even then there was no like strong coaching influence there was no one no one who was a coach in my community um and and i had no contact with a cycling coach until eddie so we're definitely getting ahead but i, I agree completely so i made a list of, of some of the things that i think have improved since the 80s and some of the things that uh have not improved and big on my list of things that have improved is this filtering down of good training practices. Uh, now, because of the internet, because of a whole variety of memes, it is possible to get good information. Even the research, it, just in the last few years, you've seen a change in the research where instead of just being a, let's put people in a lab and do a six-week study, which gives you some information but not enough, they're now able to dive into the data of highly... You know, athletes that have been highly successful and see how have they been training for the last few years and, and pull out trends and things that actually seem to make a difference. 
I think in the 80s, as you said, it was probably a trying to find any little scrap of information you could. It generally came down to you're out on the group ride or you're training with a team and you're asking people. And unfortunately, you're just as likely to get the advice of don't sleep with plants as you are, here's some good training practice. And really, you had no way of knowing what was effective and what wasn't. Sure. Yeah, definitely the democratization, if you will, to use a common term uh, of that information uh, has made it possible, like it's raised the the baseline, I, I think would be fair to say. So I think an important distinction we need to make right now, because this is going to be very important to the rest of the episode and this question of have things changed since the 80s, is to differentiate between principles and practice. Mm-hmm. And I will say we were originally thinking of doing this episode as a debate. You were going to take one side, I was going to take the other side. And in our conversations back and forth in email, we were like, eh, we kind of agree on all this. <laughs> Who's going to have to try to pretend they agree with something they don't? When we're talking about principles, we're talking about bigger picture things like the principles of uh, physiology, uh, the one that we mentioned a lot. There, there's several, but one of them is the whole overload principle. Uh, there's also, you, you could go uh, into some of the principles of, of how you overall execute, like should you periodize. Uh, practice is much more the how do you execute uh, your training to, uh, to, to maximize those principles. So that would be things like talking about Tabatas versus threshold work, talking about recovery lengths, talking about zones by power or by heart rate. Those are all the practicings. And I, I think we're all on the same page here of saying the principles really haven't changed since the 80s, particularly principles of physiology because our physiology hasn't changed. When we talk about the practice, there there are things that are, didn't even exist in the 80s that are now quite prevalent. One example basically being power meters. Yeah, they, they were, they did exist in the 80s, but nobody had one. Would you be able to put words or descriptions or, or um, names to the principles that existed back then? Sure. Um, if, if I was to like draw it in very, at a very high level, I would say that maybe everything was centered around function, right? It's like, what was, what was the, the fitness aspect that you needed to develop? And so, you know, which is really no different than today, right? It's like, you have to work on sprints, you need to work on short intervals, you need to work on long intervals, and you need to work on endurance, you know? So the training plan was organized in that way that you focused on each of those things um, in a progressive manner. You know, it was periodized. It was, it looked like the things we do today where you might, would have, I don't know what, like these, the, the, the words of like microcycle and macrocycle and mesocycle have kind of fallen out of popularity, but those were front and center. So you had annual periodization. You had essentially the equivalent of today, like with build and base and, you know, peak, all of those things existed. Um, where so that that's what it looked like and so you would have your plan you'd I would lay it out on my own mostly and then I would you know endeavor to adhere to it Hmm. modify it as necessary that was training that was what training looked like um but I don't know if it's as true today certainly maybe not at the amateur level but we also there was only a certain part of the year that you trained then it was racing 
Mm. And so there was a ton of pressure. Most of the pressure was on preparation for the season, but then you raced so many times that it was really race and recover. That, that that's like a difference. I think at least it, it's what I see with some of my athletes. Now I'd say that, you know, I didn't have to train much after April. I wanted to, maybe take us down a slight tangent here. Um, Eddie B is this somewhat iconic figure, somewhat controversial figure, uh, Jeff. I wonder, in your experience, did he bring a lot of practices and principles, perhaps, or one or the other, to the United States that hadn't really existed in a uh, formal way beforehand for him? Yeah, I, I think you have to give him credit for that. He may not have been like the most expert, you know, uh, coach. Um, he had, there were certainly some controversial things at the national level under his tenure, but uh, I think he brought the status, I mean, he brought the information that was kind of mainstream in Europe at the time to the U.S., and that was really the first time it had arrived. We were probably really uninformed until he arrived, um, certainly like the national level that brought some organization. Um, I think team tactics probably were not, were, you, you just didn't have the guidance. It was the, a complete absence of guidance. You know, you probably had two riders that were international pros in the late, in the early eighties. But then the whole generation of Seven Eleven kind of came up with Eddie's arrival. Not that he made it happen necessarily, but he was certainly coexisted with the birth of modern U S cycling. Did he set the United States and the, the community um, of cycling here on the right trajectory, do you think, um, in your opinion? Um, you know, A-B testing is always a challenge. Um, could someone have done it better? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, if you had maybe some of the most notable, um, like Guimards and Paul Coakley's and these guys who were in Europe that were running sports programs or national teams or teams, if they had come over, maybe they would have been more sophisticated than Eddie was. But um, he brought, I mean, the, the, you could almost parallel this for a coach, like when you take an athlete who has never been coached or never had a plan and say, well, you're going to get better just by having a plan and a system, right? And so Eddie brought a system and that system was good enough for progress. Leonard Zinn, the world's leading expert on bike maintenance and repair, started his career as a professional cyclist in the 70s and has seen many changes in how riders trained since then. This is what Leonard had to say. I think it's radically different. I think we all believed at the time that you pretty much hammer all the time. Like rides we do at the Olympic Training Center, You know, on a windy day, we'd go out and we'd just, it soon soon split up into these really hard echelons where you're literally trying to split the group apart into echelons or, or, or you know, you'd go up North Shine Canyon and it's really, you know, 20% grade and you're just trying to beat everybody. Every ride. Was Every all, ride. Always competitive. And... No and, rest. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so now I think the understanding of, of 
the distinction between health and fitness, I'd say, was something we never even thought about back then. And but but to to have this understanding that you really need to have the vast majority of the training you do be very uh, be very easy and and build a base and 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 create this this big foundation of health and then you can then you can add the the speed onto the top of that but it would be a very small percentage of what you do is where you're really hammering yourself and then and when you do you really go much harder because you're not doing that every single day right right and so yeah i think it's a huge difference and and i do think that back then there were there were guys who had the sense of that who just were able to listen to their body and did mm. and but most people had no clue and and um and were always trying to impress their riding buddies or the coaches or whatever on every single ride and um and the guys who had the ability to to uh be last on the training ride those were guys who ended up staying in the sport longer yep. <laughs> being good longer all that right. sort of thing but they were few and far between though I, I will say the one thing that hasn't changed there is whenever my athletes say oh i'm going on this group ride but it's an easy non-competitive group ride i always tell them that's the unicorn they don't exist <laughs> right right yeah. i'm curious also about how nutrition may or may not have changed what did you eat at the Olympic Training Center in 1980 versus what do you think they're eating down there now? I don't know what they're eating now. I, there's more sense of food quality now. We didn't have such a sense of food quality. I mean, I, I tended to be much more like, you know, when I was in 1970s, I was into organic food. Nobody even heard of organic You were a food. unicorn back yes, then. Yes, I was a unicorn <laughs> and I was a vegetarian when I was at... At, at Olympic Training Center, I was vegetarian, and the coach Eddie Borisovich, Eddie B, would say, "Bike rider must eat Polish sausage," <laughs> and, and he berated me constantly about about um, being a vegetarian. And I was pretty stupid about it. I'm pretty sure that that I left lots of results on the table because of, like, for instance, I remember racing the Tour of Ireland, and I say oh yeah i'm a vegetarian it's like well basically i got to eat potatoes every single right. every single day and every morning i got to eat soda bread with with jam on it you know with uh, uh marmalade on it and that was that was what i raced on and 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 i had no sense of really balance and and all that and 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 um but uh the quality the overall food quality at the Olympic Training Center down then, back then was pretty low. I think, you know, it was not surprising, like, to get a, have a tray full of green beans that were like those really, those ones that are half gray and totally oh, mushy that like got poured out of a yeah. can or something. It sounds you like know. you're, uh, you were in a prison, actually. <laughs> <laughs> prison food. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, so it's also changed pretty radically. Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did have lunch there. I don't know, maybe ten or fifteen years ago, and it was like, wow, this is upscale. This is good food and and lots of really good choices. And yeah, yeah. 
infrastructure. There was no coaching in the United States in a formal way, in a ubiquitous way back then. And so like you did, a lot of people were learning uh, by reading books from elsewhere or learning books that from from big name pros and piecing things together. Flash forward 40 years and now you could say there's so much information. There's a saturation of the marketplace with content and coaches that people are confused, maybe overwhelmed, perhaps slightly intimidated by the vast amount of things and the contradictory messages they're hearing. Definitely. I, I think that's the problem or the challenge. You, you, the, the transformation has gone from a challenge of a scarcity of information to an overload of information and, and perhaps conflicting too. I mean, because you also have to think that that late 80s, early 90s period is pre-internet. So there was no way to even access remote information, which is why you were relying on books. You know, so I mean, you would how would you even learn about the existence of a book? You know, where it, it's just the internet has become such a normal part of how we do things now. It seems hard to imagine. It's like how did you even find out things? But now you, you do have the sort of related problem, which is there are easy, there is easy access both to as a consumer and as a producer. And so then you have a lot of information you have to work through to, to find the sort of gold. So going back to where we were a bit um, in the talking about the 80s, um, some of the things that, you know, I'm going to play novice here. Periodization seems like a huge principle that may not have been given birth to in the 1980s, but was popularized at least in the United States during that time. And I've got to think that that was a fundamental shift in the way that um, people trained. Yeah, I'm going to have to say for me, I never knew a time pre-periodization. So my exposure to the sport uh, and training preparation, that, that was the starting point. So, um, I think you could probably say uh, periodization was was more simplistic before my time, but probably still existed in some form. Um, it would just it might have been as simple as uh, you know in season out of season kind of thing, and you know you might have just started okay, you just get on your bike on January one, and and you you know you ride two hours a day, and then in in February, you ride three hours a day. And, you know, that would have been a little bit before my time. Um, but then, then the, and then the races would start and then the races would improve your form through doing the activity that you're actually training for. Um, if you read some of the books published by the older pros, like Sean Kelly has a book and you, you, you read his pathway, which was before mine. So he would have come up in the seventies it was centered around racing. Um, and in fact, some of his directors, uh, basically the, to keep the guys off the couch would just make them race more. Right. So make sure that they, they, there was like the true off season, but then it was like, okay, no, January one, you're racing and you know, you're not going to get four weeks on the couch. So we're going to go do this other race right after this one finishes. And, and I, I think that, that, 
was not periodization as we know of it today. That sounds like there were training races and there were races, and there wasn't such a thing as training <laughs> in its very simple terms. I was going to say, for me, I would, you know, for me, the training season was like January to April 15th. And, and then it was like, okay, you know, it's race, recover, race, recover. If you have a big break or you want to like induce a peak at some particular time in the season, you might do something a little bit around that. But otherwise, racing took you to the next level from your, your training in preseason. Another thing I'll point out that has become more sophisticated uh, and ultimately impacted how, how you periodize. Interesting what, you, what, what your thoughts are on this, but certainly when I was starting out, and I wasn't actually doing any racing in the 80s, so I'm really, my start of my experience was the early 90s. Uh, but even then, they tended to talk about it in terms of central and peripheral factors. So you got to train your central conditioning, which is really referring to that oxygen delivery, and then train your peripheral factors, which is at the, the muscle level. And the idea being long, slow training, volume trains the, the, the central, and high intensity trains the peripheral. So in the base season, you do a whole lot of long, slow, and then during the season, you do a whole bunch of intens intensity. It was kind of simplistic. And... It was based on a lot of assumptions, not a ton of research. And I, one of the things that I think has changed, and this was particularly in the 2000s, was as they started to identify the physiological pathways that produce adaptations, as they could start to see the genetic markers that do and don't produce the sort of adaptations we see in training, it became much more sophisticated. And they realized Actually, that's really not the case. You can't just simply divide into central and peripheral. It does appear that all training tends to train all different sides. And what you see now more coming out of the science is trying to maximize the ways of producing these adaptations with a good understanding of our energy systems and the ways we adapt. That was not something we had in the 80s. Yeah, I think you're right. There was not, certainly there was no knowledge and easy access to be in a feedback loop with chemical markers and triggers for adaptation that, that science has enabled uh, more recently. Um, but I do think um, it was, at least for me, organized, uh, I want to use this term, functionally, right? You, know, you, you kind of looked at what are the demands of the sport and the training was built around the demands of the sport. And so I never was in a scenario where I only rode base, you know, for months on end as, as sort of like step one in the training process. For me, uh, in my experience was that existed in the off season. And, and that was just because you were trying to get a break from intense training. But on January 1, I was in at all levels of intensity, sprints to inter short intervals, anaerobic systems, aerobic systems, the whole bit. And yes, there was long, steady distance, but it was really for the purpose of the endurance and it was tuned to the length of the races that you had to do. It is simplistic um, because you don't have as many variables to target, but I think there was value in just looking at what are the demands of the events you're trying to be successful in and train for them. So it was a little bit more functional than systemic, you know, like the actual physiology piece um, in detail. Kind of goes back to this argument of the principles haven't changed. There were probably people back then who had a real good understanding 
of how to train, even if there wasn't as much science behind it. Um, and you were one of the lucky people to be exposed to that, where there was a whole bunch of us, as we said, as you called it, there's been a democratization of this information. Back then, I was not one of the people who was exposed to good information, so I got a whole bunch of crazy notions that were yeah. shared with me before I finally talked to somebody who knew what they were talking about. Right. Yeah, I think I got exposed to the crazy notions um, when I went to Europe more than, than here. Uh, and it was like classic Europe. I mean, it was like a joke, you know, it was like the European wives tales basically, um, about don't walk the day before a time trial and you can't have tomato sauce cause it's acidic and you can't have ice cream cause it'll make you sick. I mean, there's a guy I raced with who was from Poland who, uh, who would not have cereal with cold milk because it was cold and it would make you sick. You know, so there was a lot of that kind of stuff. <laughs> I love it. That's gone. Give us but, more. Give us more, Jeff. I want <laughs> more more of these nuggets. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think. There was some stuff in Spain um, that was pretty funny because I actually got like antagonistic about it because they would say, oh, no, you can't have that. You know, you won't race well if you eat that. And I was racing well, so I just basically was like, well, I'm going to eat it and show you you're wrong. You know, and, <laughs> Here's a little science um, experiment for you. I will yeah. prove you wrong. Longtime New England coach Amos Brumble does feel a lot has changed, pointing to the better decisions athletes and coaches can make with the tools we have now. This is what he had to say about the 80s versus now. I think the basic principles are mostly at play, and I, I tell people progressive overload is the most basic thing. And we just have much better ways of, of, uh, showing that now. And it makes it, you know, it's given us a lot of different workouts, but for me, you know, when I started, you know, the only metric I had was speed. So, you know, I still continue to use it. Um, you know, but a lot of my workouts that are not my favorite ones in terms of like how I do them are based on, you know, better information that's available now. Do you think that you are the exception to the rule and you're just a kind of a old school guy and that's why you train the same way you used to? Or is this just a, a, a fact of physiology? You know, I think, you know, given, given no training advice, I, I tend more towards being like a kind of like a sprinter. Hmm. Um, you know, I believe it or not, I actually don't do any hardly those, any of those workouts anymore. I actually use exert quite often. Um, and I actually put those workouts on a Garmin IQ app that runs while I do the ride and I'm just hitting the numbers believe it or not. Yeah. Well, that sounds so. somewhat modern and sophisticated to be using those tools. Yeah. I, I, it, there's a difference between like the, the things that I really enjoy doing and I do think they have benefit and maybe what I'm actively doing uh, or actively recommending that other people do in terms of coaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I, I do think training has changed a lot. And I think that shows up when you look at how quickly a rider can develop a lot of power you know, in, in a modern, you know, like coaching situation compared to what would have likely happened, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, uh, the person, you, they can be coached to a much higher level in a, 
in a very reduced period of time, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, I think training has changed significantly in terms of the coaching knowledge. So to flip this question around a little bit, picture yourself back early in your career in the, the eighties. Um, what things exist now in either training or technology or whatever that you would say, boy, I wish we had had that back when I was starting. To tell you the truth, I was that guy that bought, bought everything as soon as I could get it. So my first heart rate monitor was a road gear computer. And the heart rate monitor actually had a wire that went from the chest strap and plugged into it. <laughs> so, I mean, I've used heart rate monitors for like a long time. Didn't know what to do with them necessarily. Um, but I think the power meter has made the biggest difference. And I think the availability of actually having a coach, like so technology in terms of like the internet um, to communicate with somebody who's a better coach and can help you. I mean, that's what I would give anything for is to have, a coach from today to be able to go back in time and find me when I first started. Who would you pick as your coach? Do you know? Off the top of my head, I'd just have to say Trevor. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I wow. was really hoping you would say that. If I could go back to the eighties and have one thing that I have today, it would be my bikes because then they would be new. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Can you train like you did in the 80s and still uh, see progress and, and put out great performances? And, and the answer is yes, but there's there has been quote-unquote progress as well when it comes to the art of periodization. I don't think you can, you can honestly take the position that the, the advances that have occurred over the last 20 years would have no impact. You certainly could emulate, um, you could progress, you can overload um, in, in, in a, without the technology and the tools that we have today. Um, it would seem simplistic by comparison though, um, and, and uh, maybe as a form of an example, is that now you can rely on a power meter to be very specific in terms of pacing intervals um, and, and that's linked to the underlying physiological systems and, and all the purpose that's in science that's behind it that you couldn't possibly do it in, in the 80s because there was no power meter. I mean, you did have heart rate, so you, you could use that tool in certain circumstances. But what we did in, in reality was that we achieved a similar thing because of we believed at the time in this basically the power duration curve without the terms because you knew, okay, well, there's a maximal effort for one minute and there's a maximal effort for two minutes and they aren't the same from a power perspective, but from a subjective perspective, they are the same. They're, they're maximal. And so in a way you achieve, achieved something similar. Um, you just couldn't do the nuance that you can do today, which is say, well, I, I, what if you want to do a sub-maximal effort? But then, then it was blunt, right? You, the, your tools were your internal gauge, which of course is a whole nother discussion is the, when you don't have the tools to give you the feedback, you were forced 
to develop your internal gauge, your, your RPE, your subjective perception of the effort. And I, I do believe people had a much better tuned, you know, this is making a statement that's very broad and there are exceptions, but people had to tune in to, to the internal experience more than they have to now. Well, now you've jumped on uh, going to what I was hoping to discuss at the end of this, My uh, the, the things that we think have improved and gotten worse. You just landed on my big item of uh, what I think has actually gotten worse since the 80s, which is we are hit with so much data, so much information, so much analysis. We automatically assume that's better, but I will make the counter argument that that sometimes gets us so focused on particular numbers so focused on a particular graph that we start to lose the the self-awareness, the sense of self, the idea of, well, I, I need to know what the right intensity feels like. Right, right. And I'll give you an example. Chris and I got an email yesterday from somebody who was was quite frustrated because he was trying to execute a particular interval, and he sent a very lengthy explanation of or, or, questioning of, should this be at my FTP or my anaerobic threshold? <laughs> and my response is, well, it's a range. And the fact of the matter is doing those intervals. So let's say your, your FTP is 310, your anaerobic threshold is 300. My argument is going to be one day FTP is going to be right. One day anaerobic threshold is going to be right. Another day, neither is going to be right. Because every day you're going to be a little bit different and it's going to move around. So you have to know what it feels like to do the intervals right. You can't just say, well, here's what a bunch of graphs tell me is the right number. So I'm going to go out and just do this number. And in the 80s, you had no choice but to really learn the right feel. Yeah. And, and you see it. And I mean, that's that's uh, something you see that is just executing the interval would be one thing. Um but even in races and other scenarios where, where it's more racecraft, your racecraft suffers by not having that internal perception. Um, I worked with an athlete years ago who was a TT specialist. And in a particular race, the, the power meter was reading wrong. And he raced to the power meter instead of his effort level. And it was reading high. So he didn't go as hard as he could because the power feedback said, you're at the right pace. Mm. And it's a throwaway race because he didn't go as hard as he could. <laughs> he's, he's lucky it wasn't in a, his A race or his, the national right. title race or something because he right. and, lost and, because of that. And, re, and then sort of the contrary or the, the flip side of that is also true is that I see on a regular basis is when people see low numbers, it gets in their head. Right. They can't. It actually is self-fulfilling. And when if you go back to the early days, you know, the back, the, whatever the, you know, low tech days, you didn't really. I mean, you were like, oh, yeah, I feel good or I don't feel good. But you didn't have this very precise feedback that said, oh, yeah, you're you're 10 percent off or you're 20 percent off. And it couldn't be a feedback loop, which exists now. So you get this negative piece of data and then it makes you suffer more. And then you look and you see the negative getting more negative and, and then you just downward spiral. So um, I think, yeah, that's the challenge is to take the advances and not have them replace the good things from 
you know, the old days, if you will. I want to arbitrarily force a little bit of uh, uh, competition here between decades, the 1980s and the, <laughs> and the current uh, decade. Uh, so it sounds like, uh, yeah, and this is completely made up basically, but periodization has quote unquote improved. So let's just say that the the, the 2020 decade wins when it comes to the application of periodization in, in some ways because of the tools. However, the 1980s athlete in terms of being a self-aware uh, f- athlete who can feel his way into a good performance or um, subjectively know, quote unquote, know that he's hitting the target, whatever that may be. Let's put a tick box in the 1980s for that one. So we're tied yep. one, 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 one to one at this point. Nice. We got a tie. <laughs> and I want to quickly share another story of the talking about that feel versus the, the numbers. This was a conversation I had with an athlete a few years ago who was talking to me about how do you break away from the field? And he was quite insistent on what sort of power should I put out uh, to get away from the field. And I kept going, whatever power is needed to get away from the field. But what is that power? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like it, it doesn't work that way. And, and anybody who's an experienced breakaway artist will tell you, you attack you look under your armpit to see if the field's chasing you down or not. And if they're chasing you, you have to do an assessment of your head of, can I go hard enough to hold them off? Uh, and he just wasn't getting that. So he's finally like, what's the power? And I, I just finally kind of in frustration went, here's the power. It's whatever power it takes for you to puke your guts out in five minutes and then keep going for another hour. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's 500 watts. Yeah, sure. 500 watts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, as you as we all know, the racecraft is what drives that. It's timing. It's what is what are, what is the field doing? You know, and that's that. You know, and you could do the same thing ten times, and fail nine times and succeed once. You can attack the field at five hundred watts and not get two seconds on them. There are other times in the race where you can ride away and get thirty seconds on the field, never breaking three hundred watts. Right. And I, while we're, I have another uh, little anecdote story, which comes into like, if, if a, I had data, I probably, this probably would not have happened is that I was having a, it was a road race and I was not having a great day. And I basically, I determined that part of the way through the race. And, and I told my teammates, I said, look, I'm not feeling it today. I'm ready to just suicide for you guys. And, and at that point it made sense for me to just, I said, look, I'll cover everything in the last third of the race and you guys just hang back. Nothing will get away. And you guys put in the race winning moves at the end. And I switched mentally, you know, from not feeling good to like, okay, now it's my job to cover everything. And I covered everything. And then I covered a move that then rolled away. And then I was in the break and the field wasn't coming back. And I was like, Oh, well, okay, I guess I'll just have to win this race now since it's on me. I'm here. <laughs> right. And I won the race, but but all of it was from a switch in mindset, not from a change in physiology. And if I had had power feedback probably in that per- first part of that race or even in the break or who knows what, I would have just said this isn't possible. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Let's maybe move on to a specific item, the heart rate monitor, and talk about that um, in the context first of the 1980s. And then we can talk about 
has it improved? Has the technology advanced in any way? Are we in the same place as we were back in the 80s? So Jeff, tell us, what type of heart rate monitor were you using back in those uh, late 80s days? I think I had one of the early polars um, and, you know, it wasn't really small enough to go on your wrist. I mean, it had a wrist strap and everything, you know, but basically we had little foam things that you would clip on. It, it basically um, it's a little bit like pads on a BMX bike or something where you'd put that on the handlebar and then you'd put the watch on there. Right. Right. You know? Yes. But I think technologically, it was more or less uh, on par. I'm sure the accuracy was not as good as it is today. Um, but uh, one thing that was absent was the the post analysis piece. Like there was no sort of downloading it that I recall ever doing anyway. You know, downloading it to something and then reviewing it. Um, that that wasn't part of my use of a heart rate monitor. Um, this the was simply I, in the moment that you used it. Yeah, there was no software. Yeah, yeah. You 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 viewed what was going on in the moment, um, and the way that I actually used it um, was not uh, all the time, and probably because there was nothing to do with all the time data. That that the value of looking at it all the time didn't seem to be that high. So what I would do is periodically. I would do a particularly hard workout with it and check whether my internal gauge was accurate. Like I've been doing these interval workouts and I feel like I've been going as hard as I can. Does my heart rate reflect that? Mm -hmm. And that's how I would use it. And so not every workout did I do it. And, you know, um, and I don't remember having any real like sort of wound up feelings about using it or not using it. Like, we might see today. It was just kind of like, okay, no, probably now is a good time to make sure I'm really, my, I really am going that hard. And that's what I would use it for. Never raced with it. Um, and that was, that was heart rate monitors for me. So. Hmm. So a complete lack of historic data, no trends could be, could be spotted. No patterns could be seen. Um, it, it may be a bit of a check on that RPE, that sense that you had inside, but otherwise it was not utilized. Well, I mean, think about it. It's like heart rate doesn't change that much once, once you're reasonably trained, right? Your threshold heart rate remains your threshold heart rate more or less with count discounting age, but, uh, you know, your power at heart rate at threshold will change. But so your max heart rate and your threshold heart rate, you know, those were kind of fixed things. Um, and so it was sort of just checking, okay, is my subjective perception of this effort in line with what my heart is doing on the day I'm looking at it? You know, and we know that changes depending on fatigue state and all those things. But I mean, I didn't get too wrapped up about that, you know, so... Yeah. I have years worth of just sheets of paper where I would write down the date, the t length of my ride and time, the distance, the average speed. And, and once I finally had a heart rate monitor, my average heart rate. And, and that was the only data you could write down and have any sort of record of. And, and I still remember when Polar finally came out with a heart rate monitor where you could download it and graph it. That was the most incredible thing. <laughs> I think that was like 2000, 2001. Wow. Not even in yeah. the 90s. 
That's amazing. That that was yeah. I could see how that would be like. Oh my god! I can actually do something with this information now and see it, quote unquote, see it. Did did you have one of those the the polars where it was an IR interface, so beam a light to transfer the data to your computer, so you would sit there for ten minutes trying to line up the the heart rate monitor with a little IR interface on your computer. I've never even heard of such a thing. No, I I never did it. Oh God, I had that for years. No, the epitome of tech on the bike was really was like the simplest of cyclocomputer, right? It was speed. Yep. <laughs> the Avocet used to make a, a cycling computer that was ubiquitous. I mean, the thing was so unsophisticated, you know, but it was on every bike. And if you see even pros from like the eighties and you'll see those are on there, you know, and they came in all different colors. It was a little bit like a swatch, you know, mm-hmm. yep. right. uh, ver- yeah. version of a, yeah. uh, of a bike computer. But um, you know, all the developments maybe with certainly data at recording and analysis with heart rate and then eventually power meters came after my competitive time quite a bit after my competitive time. Let's jump over to power meters, shall we? And talk a little bit about what those looked like when you were um, racing. You, you didn't have a power meter on the bike, but maybe in the lab setting you did. Is that true? Yeah, I did a, a number of tests with um, a little bit. I actually, there was a cat eye that machine that was available. I mean, the most typical one was the Monarch, which is a non-digital you know, and, and we've all seen those in the exercise physiology labs. Um, and, and the, but cat, I made one that was, I mean, even by today's standards, wasn't really that bad. Although now that I'm thinking about it, it might've actually printed out the data, like almost like an old style calculator with the paper roll on it, you know? Um, but you would do, you would do lab, typical lab testing, right? You would do VO2 testing, you do lactate testing, you, you could do ramp tests of, I mean, you could do the old style Conconi with just a heart rate monitor and, and controlled ramp. Um, that was uh, done, you know? Um, it probably was not done as much simply because there was no way to put great action. You know, you couldn't take that data and do a whole bunch with it, right? Because you couldn't do it on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. with your training. So uh, it was more of a periodic thing or year-to-year thing where you would check where you were. One, I guess one thing I do remember doing with test results um, was taking essentially the heart rate power curve, so the Conconi graph looking for the deflection points, but then doing that at different points during the season to see which parts of the curve had moved more or less than the others to get feedback on where has your training, maybe you haven't been focusing enough time because it hasn't improved in line with other improvements. So, which may or may not have been an accurate way to go about it, but um, that was probably as sophisticated as I got. I remember uh, most of my contemporaries, especially if you were up and coming, Getting a VO2 test at the time was really not a, a thing you wanted to do unless you were Greg Lamont. <laughs> um, if you didn't have, you basically, you were you almost guaranteed to, to get a result that didn't say you were going to be the next Tour de France winner. 
And so what team directors tended to do at the time was they looked at that and they said, oh, well, you're in the 60s, you're, you're, you're never gonna be anything. Or you're in the low 70s or mid 70s, like, eh, maybe you'll be a domestique, you know? Um, so it was almost like a death sentence it, it, to do a VO2 test. And, and invariably they made them do you do, you had to do them in the off season. So you were at your heaviest and your form was at its worst. That was more my orientation to testing. So I think there's another, when we're talking about power, there's a couple really important, but somewhat subtle changes that power brought about, uh, brought about in training uh, and particularly in cycling. So first it's really important to understand that Initially, most of our metrics, most of our ways of doing training, particularly in the 80s, were all internal. So talking about you know, what's going on in your body. So it was based on perceived effort. Perceived effort is, is completely internal. Uh, the first real metric that we had was heart rate. Heart rate is also an internal measure. Really, the only external measure that you had was speed. And certainly that was looked at quite frequently because ultimately a race is won by whoever's fastest, so speed is, remains important. Uh, but power is an external measure. And I think one of the subtle changes you've seen is an emphasis much more on external measures than internal metrics. Uh, and that's what's really dominant right now. We really think the way to train is by power. And not, you know, a lot of people now don't even train with heart rate monitors because they go, well, that, why would I want that? Well, you want that because it's an internal measure. It's telling you what's going on with your body. So that's, I think, one subtle change. Um, that brought about another subtle change that's also very important, which is as they were ramp or starting to do more and more exercise science research, it really started with all the research being on runners because you needed an external measure. And before power, there was no external measure for a cyclist in the lab. If you put them on a trainer, their speed is zero. So all you had was internal measures. A runner, you could at least put them on a treadmill. And well, you can measure speed. Um, I, I was not gonna go deep in the weeds, but if they're on a treadmill, they're actually doing no external work. So when power meters came around, all of a sudden you had this great external measure for cyclists. And it was actually better than how you measured uh, runners because as I said, when a runner is on a treadmill, they're actually doing no external work. So you can't measure work. With a power meter, you can't even when they're on a trainer. So you saw a shift in the research from being very running dominant to actually for endurance sports being very cycling dominant. Has the advent of the power meter, has the ubiquity of the power meter made cyclists universally better? I'm going to, I'm going to answer first with the hard, the hard way for us to know, right? That probably the best way for us to resolve this debate in a practical sense would be not to focus on the elite level athletes, but to look at sort of the mainstream competitive athlete, and that right. could be in triathlon or cycling, and, and, and ask the question, has the level rate, has, has it risen as a result of these advancements, including primarily the power meter? And I don't know the answer to that. And, and it would be really interesting to say, well, to, to, to try to discover, are the pro one, two fields or the one, two fields uh, from the eighties and nineties, were they slower than the one, two fields 
today or the master's fields or the cat four fields or, you know, all of those levels, because what's probably the most different is the training guidance tools and analysis that that group has. That's Mm -hmm. what's really different where the elite have always had access to the best available science and tech, you know? Um, And I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, my gut says no, but I, I could be wrong. Before you jump in, Trevor, because I know you have an opinion here, but I, I, it feels to me as if there are, like with most things, pros and cons to the power meter. There, are, there is more nuance to be found and, and, and utilized in training, but there's also more data and, and people can get distracted by that or overwhelmed by that and so forth. So it seems like the power meter has quite a number of advantages and quite a number of disadvantages. I would say my answer is used right, a power meter is a remarkably powerful tool. That's great to have. Used wrong, yeah, I think it can get you distracted. It can get you off course, have you focus on the wrong things and actually hurt your training. To use it right actually takes a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge. And unfortunately, the things that are the most exciting and most appealing about the power meter, such as the the big five-minute wattage you did or what you did going up a climb, the, the things that we all love to see, are tend to be the things that get you off track. So at least with the athletes that I have worked with, that I have talked with, you know, maybe it's a 60-40 split, but I would say a little more than half unfortunately use a power meter in a way that I would describe as, as hurting their training, not helping their training. The, the 40% who use it right, it can make them, could be very effective. I would also suggest that the, the, given the athlete, you could take a particular athlete, you could say, okay, you're going to use a power meter for one year and then you're going to take that power meter away from you and there you wouldn't necessarily see any difference in their training because they have that self-awareness they have the feeling they understand the principles so on and so forth and therefore it 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 uh isn't a necessity that it be used to get to a high level but other people would be completely lost without that information is that true there's a psychological component too. And I, I've worked with athletes that really thrive on having that feedback loop that, that power on the bike can provide and, and heart rate to a certain extent as well. You know, where other athletes that actually breaks them down over time, that, that constant focusing on that, that feedback make burns them out. And so, you know, I, I, I've often asked myself is, is at the, especially at the elite level, do you have a different personality or a different mindset of athlete thriving today versus the ones that thrived in in sort of the pre-technology days more to Trevor's point is it's, it is absolutely a useful tool. And the challenge is how to apply the tool the right way. It's, you know, it, it's, if it's a hammer, you don't knit, then just drop all your other tools and, and, you know, use a hammer to, you know, to do everything. It, it's, it's a hammer that has very specific use and provides value to the training process. If you exploit it for what it's, you know, it's best value. 
So I'll give an example. I'm interested whether you agree with this, but sometimes it helps with an example of, of what I would consider good use and bad use. And this example will be with myself just to show that even though I, I am aware of these issues and try to tell athletes not to, to do, use it the wrong way, there is such a huge temptation, I find it hard myself not to use it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So I have these hill repeats that I love to do, and the hill repeats are all about uh, consistent execution. You do a certain number of repeats, you want them all to be about the same intensity. So when I do them right, I, I go out, I do my first interval more by feel, get a sense for where I'm at that day, and, and then at the end of the interval go, uh, I think X wattage is about right, and, and kind of target that, use heart rate a lot, uh, so I want to be right around my threshold heart rate, and can get through what I would consider a very successful set of intervals that were executed well and are going to produce the training adaptations I want. That, to me, is effective use of the, the power meter. The ineffective use, which I say I would say I get caught up in at least half the time, mm-hmm. is when I go out and I go, okay, well, it's March 15th, and back when I had a good year and whatever year, uh, right in the middle of March, I was doing these intervals at X wattage. So now I got to go out and do that. When I'm, and if I'm out there and I go, oh, no, I'm 10 watts below what I was doing that March, and you, you try to ramp it up and go at an intensity that you know RPE is telling you, this ain't right. You're not getting through the set. And you ignore it because you have to prove that you're as strong as you were a few years ago. That's bad execution. And it's really get easy to get caught in that game. Same thing. Have one day I go out and do them and I was feeling really good and put out some banner wattage. I come out a week later to do them. I want to hit that wattage again, but that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. In that case, you're using a number to express or equate with success or fitness or the form that you're hoping to have or realize. And sometimes that's just going to take you right off track from what your goal, actual goal is. You're targeting a number instead of saying what is right for the best gains from these intervals. And the one nice thing in the 80s is it was really simple. You didn't have any of those things. So you learn the feel. And then every time you went out and did them by feel and had no idea that, well, last week I did these 20 watts higher than I did this week because you didn't have those numbers. Yeah. I suppose you could make the argument that your brain isn't without its flaws either. And so the feeling you had of success on one day could be very different from the feeling you had the other day. And if you had a measure, you might be hitting the same watts. Well, my brain has many, many flaws, (laughs) but we'll do a whole episode (laughs) on that another time. That's another another show. Yeah. I think you're right, though. I think it shifts the focus. I think that in uh, pre-tech days, you, you, you had to embrace the idea that, hey, I'm working on a system. And implied in that sort of purpose was the, the underlying system's not that exact anyway, right? It's not that it, there's, I don't even think today we can say, well, if you were training five watts higher, you've got this demonstrable measurable difference in terms of an adaptation so you knew that like okay i'm i'm my goal is to stress a particular system and that was the focus and now with the advent of a very precise feedback mechanism i think we've been pulled away from the focus is stressing a system to achieving an outcome right and i think that's problematic 
And the flip side I'll give you, I agree with you completely. 510 watts really isn't going to have possibly any impact on the training adaptation, except if you're targeting 10 watts higher than you can actually do those intervals at, and you were supposed to do five repeats, and at two and a half, you blow up and then go home with your tail between your legs because you couldn't get them done, that is going to have an impact on your training. Right, right. Yeah, and you couldn't do that without the power meter because you wouldn't be chasing a number. You're just chasing right. a sensation. So, um, yeah, I, you know, even so, I, I, you know, again, it's solvable. It's just we have to always sort of take power and and filter it back through the purpose goals and equating it with sensation. Um, I rarely am telling my athletes to to hit their best. I don't want, I mean, this is a little bit my bias from having a, a competitive background. It's like, I don't want to hit my bests in training. I want to hit my bests in a race. Right. And we all know that motivation is not infinite, right? And, and anyone who's raced a full season knows that, that motivation is a scarce resource and, and you have to preserve that. And so if you go out every training session, that's a hard session and you go for your best possible effort, I don't think you can have your best efforts all season in the races when it matters. Um, but that's a racer's bias. Um, so this like loops a bit, a little bit back to where we began the conversation is that maybe chasing numbers is good for certain types of athletes or participants. If your goal is to track improvement and progression, and it doesn't have anything to do with podiums and placings, then this is a perfect tool because you can see improvement. So, so let's get back to our tally here. Heart rate monitor sounds like the monitor itself, it's a, it's a toss up because it hasn't changed much. However, the analytics has changed considerably. And there have been vast improvements there. So tick in the box for, for the 2000s. Um, power meters obviously didn't really exist in the 80s, so you can't give it there. So let's give uh, to the advent of the power meter to the 2000s. Um, dare I say that it's a toss-up between the, <laughs> the, 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 the application of them? Probably not. Uh, all in all, it seems like the use of the power meter is a good thing if used correctly. So, but a bad thing if used wrong. So, yeah, I would kind of give that a equal. We asked Dr. Andy Coggin and cycling coach Hunter Allen, authors of Training and Racing with a Power Meter, their thoughts on what's changed. They agree the principles are the same, but obviously feel a lot has improved since. The physiology is the same, right? I mean, it's not that's not changed, right? Nothing has changed from that perspective. Um, you know, and, and periodization is still there. I mean, all those same principles are there, but the you know the way that we train is definitely changed. And I think that that's where um, why we see you know big improvements in, in in athletes you know over over shorter time frames. And I mean, that's that's a a huge difference where. Um, we can now start to reach people's potential uh, sooner, and then we can get to closer and closer to their maximum potential 
through training more with more scientific methods. You know, we're quantifying power data through uh, measuring, understanding the demands of the event. I mean, heck, we didn't even know how many intervals you needed to do in a criterium. You know, what were the demands of the event? We thought we knew. But then we got power meters and we started defining exactly the demands of the event. Oh, cool. What kind of workout would mimic this? Oh, well, I should do a microburst workout and created workouts that are specific to the demands of the event. So in that way alone, it's allowed us to train uh, differently. So you're saying some of the fundamental principles probably haven't changed. But the the specificity which which we can train, the, the way we can tailor workouts has, has improved dramatically. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it, it, ways of training, uh, sometimes people make the same point about power meters. Saying, ah, you know, Eddie Merckx didn't need a power meter, et cetera. Um, I've often you know, argued that there's sort of like three things that athletes take a path. Either, you know, there's the people who never figure out how to prepare for events and reach their, you know, potential. There are people who figure it out pretty quickly on their own. And then there are the people who it takes a long time. Well, the people who never figure it out, I mean, they're clueless and, you know, they buy a power meter that's a bolt-on toy and, you know, they don't necessarily benefit. And the people who figure it out pretty quickly, well, they don't necessarily benefit directly or immediately that much. But by hitting the middle group, those that uh, figure out eventually this is their best way to train, uh, by speeding up that learning curve, you don't necessarily make the fastest faster, but you make more people fast. And then that means everybody has to up their game because the competition has become more intense. And so ultimately, the people who were already fast are forced to get faster, but it's because of the groundswell from below right. that is aided by having uh, data and direction on how to use that data. And good coaches like Hunter, you know. So you you brought up Betty Merck. So here's a real hot take question for you. Uh, he was obviously a genetic freak. But do you think that with today's training technology, could he have been even better? I would think so. I mean, I would think that, that uh, you know, he, he, he would have trained – you know, smarter, he would have trained more specifically, uh, and he could have achieved even, even a higher level of FTP. Uh, and, and I mean, gosh, you know, he was incredible at, at peaking when he wanted to peak. Uh, but there were times when, you know, he didn't have to, and he still was so good. You know, he was winning when he wasn't even peaking, right? That's, that's why he was such a mute. Um, so yeah, I would say so. Yeah. My initial reaction was, I have no idea. And then I thought of his nickname, McCannibal, and you thought, well, how could he get any better? And then I thought of how he prepared for his hour record attempt. And you go, oh, you could have gone so much further. Yes. You know, he didn't acclimatize. He had, you know, a few half dozen workouts or whatever with a hypoxic gas mixture. So clearly, you know, plus going after what the 5K and 10K and 20K records on the way is not the best way to pace yourself. either. No. You know, yeah, so there's a perfect example. Didn't he like he arrive the night before at altitude and like grab a couple beers and then go to bed or something like crazy like that? Like, I, I know he did like, you know, a few uh, hypoxic workouts before he traveled, but 
you know, if I were going to altitude, I'd take it a little more seriously than that. How do how do we um, take all of this conversation and give people something to to chew on, to digest, to put into practice here? Well, I'll give you the the final winning on the the scorecard here. Yeah, eighties had hair bands. The eighties had hair bands. Yes, this so, is true. Eighties win. <laughs> okay, all right, Jeff and MTV. Jeff, did you have a mullet when you were racing over in Europe? Uh, not every year, but but some years. Yes, yeah. excellent, yeah. very good. Well, how, then how that hair you... wins. How can you race and train in an arrow without guns and roses? <laughs> well, I mean, the old helmets, the leather helmet, I mean, they're called a hairnet. I mean, of course it's all about hair. <laughs> so what are some other take-homes here for people to, to walk away with? Well, I suppose I'd like to, to just say that, like, you can't write off the old school. I mean, the old school has some uh, valuable uh, contributions uh, to the training process. Um and of course, I, I, you know, it was interesting when I came back to coaching uh, with the existence of all of these tools and techniques and uh, systems uh, for analysis, I had kind of a harsh reaction initially. Um, I, I immediately saw, oh, the value of the feedback is great, you know, to put, be able to put a number, uh, you know, with power. Um, but some of the analysis that has arisen out of having all of this data, my, my first reaction was, this is like, it seems like a bit of false precision um, that we don't fully understand the systems that, that are operating. And so while we are measuring them, we may still not really be to the end point, right? You know, we're early days in terms of understanding the physiological systems and then linking them to the tools that we measure. And so I think it, the challenge is not to get lost in this precision and data and analysis um, because it, it's not 100% accurate. And it, it's actually hard. It just creates new questions, which maybe is not moving us always forward, right? We're just getting mired where we maybe were mired with a lack of information. Now we're mired with too much or a tendency to focus on things that may not really be that productive to focus on. Um, I think that probably in another 40 years, it's going to be a different story. And, and I think that's going to be big data as, as a result of big data. Uh, and uh, machine learning and what have you. I think that's probably where we'll start to really understand the trends and the underlying data that it's very hard for us to parse out right now. It, it sounds like what you're saying is um, if we took a step back from where we're, we're sitting and looked at the, the playing field that we're in right now, we are a little bit lost in the forest. There's so much information, so much data to be used. We just aren't exactly sure yet how to use it best. And 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 in some ways, what we're collecting is as not as accurate, if you if you want to use that word, as it could be. And in 40 years, well, we'll see drastic changes. It might be in 10 years we'll see drastic changes in the improvements of data analytics uh, far surpasses where we're at right now. Uh, that's what I, I, I think that that's part, at least partially true, right? That, that 
were struggling to extract meaning out of the data and the tools that we have. Uh, we're certainly successful at certain levels, um, but I, I often feel as if we're looking and we certainly are seeking precision. Like we want to link uh, what we see on the sensors to an underlying condition and then sort of change how those things interrelate and do a better job of training and, and developing fitness. Um, but, you know, anyone who spends time reading studies on, on exercise science, you're going to be left with this idea of we don't know what we're doing, right? Because we get conflicting results a lot of the time. Um, and, and it's because of the details. We don't fully understand the black box. I mean, or there's at least a certain aspect of black box to things still mm -hmm. uh, with the body. Um, but that doesn't mean the tools aren't useful. You just have to just don't, don't think they're going to answer all the questions, but they do vote, do a very good job of answering some questions. You, you coached CU for six years. So athletes ranging, you know, early, uh, late teens, early twenties, I guess you could say, I would assume that you were collecting data on them. I'm just curious how much they were participating in the analysis of that data, or if you were, I don't, protecting is maybe not the right word, but how much were you sharing with them or how much were you um, keeping that information to yourself in a sense so that they didn't get distracted by that? Or was it a case-by-case -case basis even at that age? Well, I, this is actually kind of, the answer to that comes from, the structure of collegiate bike racing um, is while CU was a very successful program, it was a club program. They don't have any resources. So that was not going on. It, um, where if you take a varsity program that has allocated resources, they have full-time coaches that it's, you know, that's what they do. And they work with a, a fixed, you know, and they recruit their athletes and they have a fixed number of athletes and, and they, you know, they, they, they're filtering off the top, if you will. And they're working with the more serious athletes. They're going through those processes and they have the tools and resources to do it. Um, you take a CU, which is the largest collegiate program in the country. When I was working there, uh, you have 150 athletes with one part-time coach. It's impossible. You can't do it, even if they were all serious. Um, but in that 150 riders, you also have a bigger spread of interest level. You have people that are, are this is not, they're not trying to become a pro. You know, this is fun, especially on the mountain bike side. Um, but they enjoyed it and probably they won't do it after college but they'll be a participant in the sport. So rather than to belabor the point is there was not a lot of that done. Um, maybe the, the subset of a riders um, who were particularly engaged and were looking to, you know, move beyond the collegiate level. Um, there was more focus on that. Um, but I felt for me, a lot of what the cool thing about collegiate was that you were there at all the races as the coach. Um, and you had the opportunity to be the in-person coach, um, almost like team director role more. Um, and so 
I felt like I had, was making more contributions from a racecraft perspective than from a technical training perspective. And many of them had their own coaches anyway. So, gotcha. you know. Sorry to sidetrack us there, Trevor. What uh, take-home messages would you like to leave listeners with? So I'm going to go back to the scorecard, which wins the 80s or the or now. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say it depends. And, and allow me to explain that. So if we go back to how we started this whole episode, we talked about the principles. And the principles haven't really changed. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that was nice about the 80s was that was really all you had. And uh, it kept things simple. Not a lot of clutter there. And you could focus on the principles. Uh, Everything that I think has been introduced since then, even things that we think of as being huge, like power meters or the ability to analyze all this data that that most people didn't have access to until recently, all really just fine-tune how you execute the principles. But as we said, they have that danger of you get so caught up in all the trees, you forget the forest. So if you're really focusing on all the numbers and the metrics and anaerobic threshold versus FTP versus MLSS and forget those principles, then I'm going to say 80s win. Mm -hmm. It was simple. You focus on the principles. (laughs) Right. You were probably training better. If you can stay focused on the principles and then use all that data to really hone in and, and focus how you are training based on the principles, then I think now wins. Well, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for the 80s, not because I remember it very well. I was young, but we've talked about this, Trevor. I, quote unquote, train like I'm in the 80s. I, you know, the 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 not so secret secret here is that I am one of those people that does it. I'm I like to say I'm like Ned Overend. I don't use the power meter religiously. I don't use a heart rate monitor religiously. I use a lot of self-awareness and feeling and my head more than any any tools or software or anything like that. So that's why I'm kind of uh, I'm I'm rooting for the 80s so to speak because I feel like that is a foundation that a lot of people miss out on these days by by focusing too much on all these new advancements or what they think are advancements and they just kind of get lost in it. Uh, I'll be the uh, counterpoint. I'm, I'm rooting for the 2020s. <laughs> Tell us why. I believe the tools and techniques have great potential and I want them to work. You know, I want them to provide all the value that I can imagine that they could. And unlike you, well, I would say I am training, training in double quotes, because I'm not actively really racing, but I'm training for the purpose of linking my experience to this tool, like Mm. to the application of the tools and techniques, because I want to see, okay, how do these fit in to the puzzle and how can the most value be made of them in light of the experience that I have? And um, so I I train all the time with power and heart rate. And I think I, I, I want to, because I feel it's my responsibility a little bit as a coach to, to prove these tools and to find how to use them the best way. 
I still am in agreement with you is that I don't, you know, we still need, we'll ultimately need to figure out how to get people to not get lost in the tools and, and sort of focus on, I mean, now I'll wax a little, you know, poetic about the good old days, you know, is like, I feel like there was a little more soul to cycling 40 years ago is, is you just looked at, at the heroes of the day and how they raced and they raced with, you know, the word of the day was panache, you know, um, and you had tour winners attacking, you know, 150 K from the finish in the mountains, which you don't see anymore. And you probably would never see with the existence of these tools. Right. Because, I mean, we didn't even go into the discussion about how the elite teams use these tools to that and how they impact race tactics. Um, but there was a little bit more of this like devil may care attitude with racing and, and, and boldness that now with, with lots of data and tools and techniques, um, you can reduce some of the sport to the outcomes become kind of known if you just do the right thing, you know, like the field almost invariably. I mean, that the solo, I mean, breakaways are always, uh, you know, a low probability event, but they're almost impossible now because you have all the information is in the team car and they know exactly how far the, how hard the chasing teams need to, to catch, right. You know, to catch the break with 5k to go or 1k to go whenever they want to catch it. Um, that actually didn't seem quite as sure of an outcome back in the day. Um, I remember often you, you get time checks from the motorcycles and you're like, well, I wonder if that's even correct. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. there was, no, there was no race radio. So, you know, I mean, there's a whole set, I mean, we're getting, I don't want to like go too far on a tangent, but, but there's a, those things contribute to the sport as we know it today. And, and I would just say, I, I think people, I, I mean, I see it in athletes that I work with is that it becomes heavy right? Where maybe that there was a little more lightness in the sport before. And so, you know, the whole, like it's now it's a, an act of rebellion to go train without a power meter or a heart rate monitor. Right. You know, maybe that's why I do it. Yeah. I'm rebellious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to declare 1980s the winner then. It had more soul. <laughs> it had more mullets and it had more soul. It wins. Well, so Hands down. so the counterpoint I was going to bring up is, is all due respect to Taylor Swift, but T Taylor Swift's new album versus Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. <laughs> oh my god, was Appetite for Destruction even in the eighties? I, I think, think it was it, like eighty nine, wasn't really? it? Really? Well, okay, maybe it was. I'm going to have to look this up. Nineteen eighty seven. There you go. Wow, it what was. Did I tell you, holy moly! You know your Guns N' Roses trivia. That was my first racing year. Wow, look at that. You, you had an appetite for destruction that year, didn't you? Yeah. 80s win. Look, 80s win. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts, and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories, fasttalklabs.com slash join, and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Jeff Winkler, Leonard Zinn, Amos Brumble, Hunter Allen, 
Dr. Andy Coggin and Trevor Connor. I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>